haven't talked about yet is, and we talked about how ways in which this production was kind of cinematic or borrowing from film, but what we haven't said or discussed really is, so how is this a play? How is, why do this as a play versus as a film? I do actually think there are things in it that work as a player that only work as theater that wouldn't have worked quite to the same degree or extent on film. I know that you don't all agree with that, but um, I think for me, some of the design choices felt that felt very theater in, in a way that worked. Well, when we were talking about those two boxes in the office, I think that I wouldn't, you wouldn't interpret that as, like, you could have split screen on film, but you wouldn't interpret it as this sort of putting them on level playing ground the way that you do on stage. For better or worse, I think that's a theater thing only. And I think a big part of one of the ways that they sort of chart the Tribune's sort of integration into patrician society is also something that you could read as given how they lay it out as important given how they're where they are in the frame but i think it's a stronger more symbolic progression on stage so what do i mean by that so one example is you mentioned that um the tribunes at one point they are dining at the same fancy restaurant as valentia and the way that's set up is you have it's basically the stage ends up divided in two halves, pretty much. And there's two tables at the front of this restaurant. And there's a few other tables behind them, but there's two tables that are at the very front that are downstage. One on the right, which is where the two tribunes are, and one on the left that's empty until Volumnia and her crew show up. And I think we read those as them being now on sort of equal playing field in a way that we wouldn't have if it was on film. It would be, okay, they're in the same place. But you wouldn't read it as sort of this juxtaposition of two factions that are now in the same place. I'm not sure I read that scene as them being on an equal playing field, Alex. And let me tell you why. Which which scene are you talking about? The scene in the restaurant. Oh, okay. The scene where Volumnia... By the way, we need to talk about the wacko characterization of Volumnia in this. Because she's like a stage mom from Toddlers and Tiaras, except her son is a war machine. <laughs> But in this restaurant, you have Volumnia dining with Menenius and some other patrician lady, the, the wife of General Comius. And they're clearly used to being here. And one table over, you have the tribunes, who are these two guys in bad suits. And it looks like it's their first time at this place. Right? Like Agreed. It was actually, I was really amazed at their physical acting and really impressed at how well they did this scene. Because without saying a word, they made it seem like They'd never been here before and were trying to look like they'd been there before. And for me, Volumnia feels free to go over to the table next to her and harangue the patrons there, which suggests a degree of comfort with her surroundings that nobody else enjoys. But for me, it was like they're not on the same playing field, but you see the, the tribunes like getting corrupted by the very lifestyle that they're supposed to be guarding against. Yeah, no, I agree. But I think that our understanding of the, the setting and our reading of the setting is so important is stronger on stage than it would be on film because on film it's like you have to be in a realistic place or well I mean it's kind of not that you can't have places as metaphors on film but it's kind of that thing that I love to quote Nick Heitner saying which is that on 
film, a room is just a room. And on stage, a room is a metaphor for something else. I think that's still true on stage here, even if they're using projections as backgrounds. To a stronger degree, like, you can still create metaphor from place on film. But I think that that's something that is, it's not, like, an automatic assumption that the place is a metaphor. Craig, you had some comments about the sports bar setting when we talked about this earlier. Um, I wanted to hear what you thought about that as, like, a, a theatrical device. Can you remind me what my thoughts were earlier? Do you recall it all? <laughs> this is when we talked about this after the play. Yes. Which, um, but you were talking about how you really liked this swanky sports bar as a place where both the Tribunes and Menenius go. And how you felt like that setting, um, which was really unusually staged, was very effective. Yeah, I do think the sports bar... First of all, it was a, a beautiful set that they did and like an elegant transition with the bar coming down from from the uh, wings above the stage, uh, like flying, being flown down with the food on top of it. Uh, it does seem a very, I guess I have a, I have mixed thoughts on it. It's a very democratic space in that they're all being served. It's clearly a very, it, it, it comes across as a, as a rather fancy venue you know they they do have they do have tvs above the bar i'll give you that that can tune into either sports or uh, apparently the news from the from the front and seeing the word of uh seeing coriolanus on his way but it is it does create a venue where they can mix quite easily and it i think plays particularly well on stage by allowing them in a very naturalistic way to be you know facing the audience very directly and and mixing and mingling at the same time the setting i think might be overused so we see it a number of times in particularly the second half of the play including while coriolanus has teamed up with ophidius and are beginning their march towards uh seizing and sacking rome i think even when they're uh at the gates of rome we continue to see cominius as well as the tribunes in in this sports bar and it really undercuts the notion that this is a serious threat to rome because there's still well while we're being told that you know rome is about to fall to these two uh incredibly strong machines of war who have teamed up together to wreak havoc and uh, seek revenge on the people of rome they're just chilling in a sports bar having some drinks thinking about maybe going out to talk to coriolanus to try and talk him down so while it's a good set i think it's the staging of some of those scenes in the second half really undercut the power that could be there in those moments. And all of the blocking in those scenes, just to bounce off of what you were saying, I think you're absolutely right. All of the blocking in those scenes is very static, right? There are these people, Alex is giving me side eye. Um, but if ahead. we look at the blocking throughout the play, there is very little motion by any of the actors really compared to a traditional play where they'd actually need to enter or exit from the wings by having the tight framing and the the smaller sets the it's mostly a stand and deliver there's very little movement by any of the actors save for a handful of scenes okay i'm gonna let emmy give her blurb but i actually think that there's a lot of really important movement in the sports bar specifically I would like to hear your blurb, Alex. I only have a small blurb about costume design because I used to work at an investment bank. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I mean, the bar is another one of those places that they've set up as a left side and a right side. And let's see if I remember this correctly. I think at the beginning, 
yeah, I think it, it's the same right and left that the, the Tribunes are on, uh, the Tribunes are stage left, and um, Menenius is stage right. Which is not at all politically symbolic. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was also the case of their offices. Same, same, same divide. And they're sitting on bar stools, but there's, I think, I want to say there's like four stools in total. But there's a divide between the two on either side, and there's like an empty stool next to Menenius. And what happens, I think, in the first scene at the bar is Menenius goes over to their side to talk to them, and he leaves his coat on his chair. And so you have this sense of they're not allowed to go to his space, but he's allowed to go to their space. And there's a slow progression. I can't remember exactly how... At what, but I think then later on, they're, they go over to him, uh, and there's stuff that, where like Volumnia and Cominius come in, and at some, and by the end, it's, it's reversed, I think, even that the tribunes are on the opposite side, and everyone is, or maybe they're not on the opposite, I think everyone is like commingled at the end, and there isn't this divide. So you see this clear thing just by, how they're moving with respect to each side of the stage and to each other and what each side of the stage means to each of them in this bar, which I think has a meaning here that's pure, that is really theatrical. Now, you can do this with a frame, but I don't think people are used to reading left side, right side of the frame to the same degree that we're used to reading left side, right side of the stage. It's a fair point. Uh, one one of the things that's interesting to me when we are talking about you know this being a theatrical experience versus a filmed one is I am presuming that Stratford is planning to film this production. So the the Stratford Festival has the artistic director who came in in 2013, Anthony Cimolino, made a commitment to uh, try and film the entire canon of Shakespeare over the period of about a decade, so three or four plays a year. Which, like, no one is going to go see Henry VIII. I really look forward to seeing that production. Like, <laughs> it's a bad play, guys. There's a reason no one puts it on. Anyway, continue. Maybe maybe they'll end up rolling it up like they did with a couple of the histories. <laughs> <laughs> uh, pair it with Merry Wives, maybe, uh, for no particular reason. Um, <laughs> but so so it's going to be interesting because... It's likely that they're going to uh, film this production and then uh, they release it in DVDs, uh, sometimes Arizona or National Broadcasters, CBC, occasionally the sort of anti-lifestyle live, live uh, uh, cinematic experiences across the country. And it's going to be a strange production for that, for that, for the very reason that it, it borrows from cinema, but in a way that I think filming this staged cinematic experience sort of removes you three times over and some of the value you get from the the magic of of how they make this experience happen live on stage i think you'll lose when you translate it to a film product i mean it's funny because alex talks about you're you're absolutely right you know you're absolutely right that the amount of vividness is going to decrease exponentially rather than linearly right Alex likes to talk about film theater as curated information loss, but it's almost like the information loss was pre-curated in this for the audience because we're used to seeing a stage and having directors have to think about where our eye ought to move. 
But because of the way Robert Lepage chose to stage this, he's constantly directing our eye, including by only letting us see a shoebox-sized portion of the action. Yeah, I mean, the aspect ratio is built into the set design. So, I mean, the, the other thing I love to quote is Julie Tamar talking about theater as sort of a vertical art form and cinema as a horizontal one. And the horizontal art form is built into this production, um, right down to the proscenium stage, that we're already dealing with sort of a cinema frame, and they really highlight that with the the title sequence. I think one way in which it might work better, I mean, this is kind of all theoretical, we don't know how it's going to work as recorded theater at this point, but... I mean, one of the issues, I think, with this production as a work of theater is that I don't think you get the same kind of visceral experience from it as you normally get from live theater. And that's partly because everything happens so far back on the stage and and because of the way it's curated, that there's something about it that's kind of stifling. You don't have the same kind of energy as... And I mean, I think that that visceral experience is a problem. Like, I think Stratford often doesn't give you this visceral experience that live theater can. I think that's a problem with Stratford. Anyway, that's, that's a whole other conversation. But if you compare it with, like, what it's like to see a play at the RSC, like, at the RSC, there's live music, and you can feel that. And then the only the actors enter on the vongs. They're, like, entering above you, and you can, like, feel them vibrating, the room vibrating from their movement as they're coming in. And so... Every time they move or the drum beats, it's like this visceral experience where you're really in the thick of it. And I didn't really get that about anything in this production. And in some ways, this production seems to be trying to remove the visceral almost because what what is the scene? What are the scenes in this that are like the most visceral experiences? And one of those would be like the confrontation between Ophidius and Coriolanus that we never see. I should also add that in a in an unusual move for Stratford, uh, the actors are all miked in this production. So traditionally at Stratford, uh, it's pure projection to fill any of their theaters, with the exception of the musicals where they're miked. But in, in this production, uh, Lepage has made the choice to uh, mic the actors throughout, which I think also removes some of that, that visceral experience of you know really hearing their voice throughout. And I think with the mics, like the only reason for it that I'm aware of is that when they're in rooms that are supposed to be big rooms, they do put an echo on the voices of the actors. One of the more visceral moments that gets cut down is like the climactic scene of the play, where after so many people have tried and failed to appeal to Coriolanus' sense of mercy, his mother his wife and his child literally go and beg for Rome. And it's one of the most emotional scenes of the play because there are two relationships warring there. There's the relationship between Coriolanus and Ophidius versus the relationship between Coriolanus and his mother. And there's supposed to be this interesting line where, you know, his mother gives also this... Also Coriolanus and his pride. Yes. <laughs> yes. The great, the true romance of this play. <laughs> but there's, like, there's supposed to be this moment where his mother sways him or almost overpowers him. And he, like, buckles and breaks down. And everybody around them sees Coriolanus give in. And at one point during this, he actually appeals to Ophidius, who says, I was moved with all. And the delivery of that line tells you so much about how this play conceives of Ophidius. And we right, don't get and it. they cut it, yeah. Yep. In fact, you don't even get Coriolanus' breakdown. 
there is no conclusion to that scene. It's like they didn't understand what was dramatic about this play. They did have the moment with the the line of, oh, mother, what have you done? But uh, breaking from the, the text and the scripted stage directions, they actually have Volumnia leave the stage uh, in advance of him delivering that line, whereas he's supposed to deliver it whilst holding her hand. And it's one of those boxed off moments, too, isn't it? Like they've turned him into like a portrait. The stage is like a portrait of him. Yes, yes at the far right hand side. And it's not so much that the stage is empty, although everyone else has filed off stage. Like, they make it clear that Coriolanus is alone. And then they choose to shrink the aspect ratio such that the only thing you can see is Coriolanus, which is very peculiar. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it, I don't understand it at all. I guess this may be an opportune time for us to move to how this production pl- treats the play's central relationships. Because Coriolanus is a really unusual play in the sense that there's very few set speeches or monologues. There's Characters don't speak to the audience very often. And you can conceive of the play as a series of dyads, a series of relationships between two individual characters. And I don't think this play had a... This production, rather, had a clear vision of how those relationships work or how they interact with one another. Oh, okay. So where do you want to start? Do we start with... Valamia and Coriolanus, or do you want to give your thing about how you realized Meninius is important watching this production? I don't remember my thing about Meninius, so... (laughs) (laughs) This is the problem about saying things, like, you know, oh, you said something really smart. Did I? Fascinating. What was it? (laughs) Well, I think you were saying that you did before you thought that the, the, the text pivots around the relationship between Coriolanus and Valamia. And now you think that it pivots around Coriolanus and Meninius. Yes. I had been talking, before we'd gone to see this production, I'd been talking with a friend about sort of what I consider my markers for plays. And, you know, in Richard III, it's how does the play treat the relationship between Richard and Buckingham? If the play has a handle on that relationship, I think the play has a, has a concept. And before, before seeing this production, I thought the play centers around the relationship between Coriolanus and his mother, Volumnia. And that was the relationship that you needed to pay attention to in order to determine if the if the production had really thought about the play. But now I actually think it's the much less obvious relationship between Coriolanus and Menenius. Because Menenius is the representation of the Roman elite to which Coriolanus belongs as a class figure, but to which he does not yet belong as a political figure. And the, the relate, is that relationship between Menenius and Coriolanus a personal relationship? Is it a relationship of convenience? Are these people who have genuine affection for one another, are these people who know each other because they're useful to one another? How do we understand Coriolanus's relationship to the class he is in writ large? I think, also, for me, Menenius is kind of like a feste figure in the sense that he is the only character really who interacts with every other character, who has entry into all of the households, all of the room. So we get to see what is his relationship with Volumnia, what is his relationship with Coriolanus, what is his relationship with the plebes and the tribunes, what is his relationship with the other patricians and the, the military. He is the only person that we actually see interact with all of those. So how he interacts with each of those different factions tells us a lot about the world. So I think almost even more so than a, a given central relationship, who is Meninius and how does he relate to everyone else? 
maybe tells us what the play, what this particular production is. And in this production, Menenius is sort of a pale version of what Menenius was in the 2011 Rafe Fiennes film version. In the 2011 Rafe, sorry, Alex, I interrupted you. Oh, I was just going to add, and in the 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 Donmar production because Mark Gaddis's Menenius was terrific in that. Yes, but I also don't think this Menenius was modeled on the Mark Gaddis Menenius. Oh yeah, no, it was more. It was closer to the Rafe Rafe Fiennes one. But I just mean that if we're talking about the importance of Menenius and how much they affect the world. This Menenius is kind of forgettable in a way that, like, Mark Gaddis stole all the scenes. Mm-hmm. Brian Cox in the Ray Fiennes one, he didn't steal all the scenes. He was, like, an important presence. And actually, Ray Fiennes almost let him steal the movie in a way by having him commit suicide so that Coriolanus is not the only person that dies. Anyway, that's, like, the one big problem with the Ray Fiennes film. But, uh, you go ahead. So... Menenius is probably a good entry into the ways in which this production ripped off the 2011 Ray Fiennes film version. In that this Menenius is basically the character of Menenius from the 2011 Ray Fiennes film version, right down to interactions with the tribunes in the same bar, which is a central part of the 2011 Ray Fiennes film version. And the Menenius in this play is kind of a sleazy political operator. And he, re- he physically resembles Paul Manafort, and I don't know how much that resemblance <laughs> was deliberate, but he's, this Menenius feels like he's ingratiated himself with Volumnia, who is stage managing her son's political career. But there doesn't seem to be genuine affection between Menenius and anybody else on stage. Yeah, and if like we compare this to say, just as far as how the role of Menenius has been important in other productions. If you compare it with the the Donmar production, the Menenius is sort of, he's very um, gregarious. He's very much, he really can fit in with the plebes and hang with them. And that kind of fits in with that Coriolanus who cries and is sort of someone likable. Like this is a production about sort of, I don't know, hum- I hate the word humanizing, but it is kind of like about trying to humanize all of those characters and make them sort of, more multi-dimensional uh no i don't think that's fair because i think the, the characters in the ray finds one are more are multi-dimensional but i think it's trying to like bring them oh god i'm gonna use another word i hate or the expression i hate like kind of like bring them down to earth make them kind more of sympathetic pardon more sympathetic more sympathetic is part of it but it also just kind of more directly relatable like you can relate to like you can relate to Coriolanus generally as like I understand him as like a concept or a character and an idea but you don't normally think Coriolanus that is like my bud right like you don't know anybody who is Coriolanus so you might know people who have some version or trait of him but i think in the in the Donmar one they're really trying to be like this Coriolanus is a guy you might know, or this Menenius is like a guy you could talk to. I'm not totally sure that's true. And the ways in which I'm not totally sure that's true get to the heart of why I don't like this production. Like, Coriolanus is awful. Like, he's an awful man. But he's also the only character in this play who's incorruptible. 
Yeah, I'm not talking about... I was talking about the Donmar. Yeah, but even yeah. in the Donmar production, like, they acknowledge that Coriolanus has this strange, horrible purity. Right. If literally thinking that other people are rats is can be characterized as a pure belief in the sense that he refuses to compromise it for his own gain. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's why I'm struggling to figure out how to describe the Donmar, but I just feel like they're trying to bring them down. They're, like, really trying to kick them off the pedestal is maybe a way of of putting it. And to try and make them more, like, regular people. Like, Coriolanus is a guy who cries, even though he also calls Glebe's curs um, and tells them they have stinky breath. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I think the other Menenius I've seen is the one that was in the Jonathan Kent production with Ray Fiennes on stage. And in that one, the rationale for Coriolanus and why, why is he like this is because he's the only young person in a state full of old people. Like the only other young people are plebes, but all of the patricians are old. And so that Menenius was played by Oliver Ford Davies, who even back then, like, was white-haired and looked old. Um, and, you know, he plays Polonius in the David Tennant Hamlet and is very much the, like, oh, you old dad. And so then you understand because of because of the way he is, like, and how he looks down on the tribunes, but at least can be diplomatic with them. And how he is sort of the representation of the people that Coriolanus has to interact with, which are People are too old, too old to be his friends, his contemporaries, and that he so he's just been isolated, and that's why he has no social skills. Like that really tells us what this world is in that in that production. Whereas, like, I'm not anyway. So that's sort of how it can be shown. Go ahead and talk about how they fail to use Menenius in this production. Well, actually, I mostly wanted to ask Craig, like, you saw Stratford's earlier production. How does this Menenius compare to that one? I can't remember the Menenius from the one before. (laughs) So if that's any indication. (laughs) uh, uh, Yeah, I, despite having been working as an usher at the time and therefore seeing the production several times, to be fair, it's a decade ago, but my memory is is rather vague on that point. But in in terms of this Menenius, yeah, if 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 it did stand out like strongly, I should recall it, and I and I certainly don't. But I will stand up for, or or give I guess a bit of a counterpoint for this production because I did feel this Menenius was perhaps oriented towards trying to keep the peace in in Rome, uh, particularly in the in the fine in the defense at the end of the first act when the the tribunes managed to lay bare Coriolanus's disdain for the people get him exiled uh Menenius was a very passionate defender and uh in that case I would uh, a very passionate defender of Coriolanus I guess friend is probably too strong a word but in in many ways like certainly was certainly is not a, is not the the most powerful character on stage in this production but does I guess in terms of the question you asked, uh, Ma, about what is the purpose, what what is the relationship like? I I don't get sort of trusted friend and confidant with uh, with Coriolanus, perhaps some form of of mentor, but also one who is trying to trying to keep the peace and control the situation and sort of utterly failing. What did you think of Volumnia? So for 
context, Volumnia in this production is played by Lucy Peacock, who is one of the grand dames of the Stratford Festival stage. This is her 31st season, I believe. And so I think it's fair to say she she st- she steals the show in this production in volume, in emotional dynamism, in uh, volume. And I think for me, the question is, is this intentional or did she literally steal the show? My inclination is a bit of column A, a bit of column B. We should note here that one of the distinctive features about this production is that Volumnia's relationship with Coriolanus, which is deeply messed up no matter what you do, here is played for laughs. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's hilarious in this production is the jokes that you make when you're parodying Coriolanus. They have turned into actual text. You know, like when she, when she says, go to the marketplace, and he says, no, I'm not going to go to the marketplace. And she's like, fine, whatever, do what you want. And then he goes, fine, mother, I'll go to the market marketplace. In this production, she leaves the stage, and they're yelling at each other from different rooms. And he goes like, I'm going, mom, fine. And she yells, do your will. And it's the most passive-aggressive, like, overbearing mother thing. Well, I think also this Volumnia is a hot mess. And I've never seen Volumnia done as a hot mess before. She's usually certainly intelligent and pragmatic and sort of... Maybe pragmatic's not quite the right word. But certainly um, she plans. And she thinks things through. And she often will do that in conjunction with Menenius. Whereas this Volumnia does not seem to think at all. She's completely driven by emotion. And she has no sense of how her behavior is affecting Coriolanus. And has no sense of how Coriolanus's unchecked pride is going to affect other things. She she does seem to, to harken back to the idea you put forward, Alex, about play depicting Coriolanus as a toy soldier. I think the depiction of Volumnia really supports that. In the early scenes, you know, before we really see Coriolanus, he's off fighting war. She's just delighted and bubbly and excited about the idea of him coming home with wounds and with blood and seems to have a very uh, a very fanciful imagined image of her son in her mind that is that is divorced from reality. And I think that allows her to be this overbearing this overbearing pure emotional presence on stage as opposed and and that is that like sort of gets at a very emotional and personal relationship between the two of them but like modeled very much just on a messed up mother-son relationship and not sort of what what other productions might have done with a more coldly calculating volumnia orchestrating a, a rise to power I think, and also, I mean, that's another way in which this is sort of taking the parody you make of Coriolanus and turning it into text is, uh, like, we were having this chat on Twitter a while ago, we were talking about what would the Twitter handles of various Shakespeare characters, what would their bios be, and what would their Instagrams look like, and I think Brandon said that Gertrude's Instagram would be obnoxious wedding photos, and... I'm not sure if we said this, but, like, the logical thing would be, what would Volumnia's Twitter account look like? It would be pictures of her son's scars. (laughs) Right? That's the joke. But I totally believe that the Volumnia in this production 
would have an Instagram. Instagram. Yeah. 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 And one more thing that, like, is really weird about this Volumnia in comparison to other Volumnias. I mean, Craig, you picked up on the cluelessness thing. And yeah, she really does seem astonishingly clueless and to have the like virtually no political instincts. But she also seems to see Coriolanus's military career in purely reputational terms. Like, this isn't a woman who thinks about honor, or this isn't a woman who's deeply invested in military victory. She's just like, I sent my son out there because then he'd get famous. Right, and I think that's in line with you know, the almost good choice of not showing the battle because to Volumnia, there is no battle. It's just my son goes away and he comes back with glory. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. That the, and, and that's further supported by the lack of battle scenes in the first half that really all we see of Coriolanus is uh, returning uh, and having the glory without really needing to fight for it. And throughout the entire production, there's really not any battle scenes per se they've really edited it out and let it take in place almost divorced from war and it's yeah yeah i'm not sure like i don't know the text well enough to know exactly what they cut out volumnia but i think they did cut her speeches quite a bit because even when she begs him at the end we don't get like this long very I mean, impassioned, sort of, but just very thought-out, articulate argument that she almost appeals, even though he's like, I was moved with all. That's how Phidias, but yeah. Yeah, no, I know. And Coriolina says, how could you not be moved? Volumnia almost gets him with intellectual arguments more so than she gets him with, you know, I love you arguments. And that's part of what makes Coriolanus, like, shocking, right? He's incorruptible, so the only way Volumnia can really appeal to him is by backing him into a corner about honor. Mm. And this is a play that is not very invested in Romanness or the concept of honor. This play or this This is a production, rather, that is not very, like, it's not interested in those questions when they're foundational to Coriolanus' character and his downfall. Right, and it's not interested in Volumnia as an intelligent woman, because I've certainly, one of the ways that I've seen Volumnia played, and I'm not saying this is the way to play her, but one way of playing her is that if she were a man, she could do what Coriolanus does, but better. Because she knows how to play the politics, and and this woman is fierce, she could probably go into battle. And so we get that in the Fines production. She's literally a retired military person. Right, right. And you see her in military uniform. But you definitely see Coriolanus as sort of like an extreme version of one side of her, almost. And that she has cultivated him in some ways, but she hasn't managed to cultivate his intellect. And, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why you might... Not that he's stupid, but I mean, you don't see him calculating. That's the word I'm looking for. He's not calculating in the same way that Volumnia and Menenius are. He's weirdly ingenuous, which is the one redeeming characteristic of Coriolanus. <laughs> yes. Like, he's genuinely totally incorruptible. One of the things that's interesting with this production is I I think that Robert Lepage just switched ideas halfway through the play about what he thought 
Coriolanus is about. The first half is very much quite literally. A, yes. Yeah. <laughs> the 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 first the first act, uh, which ends, it ends at the at the banishment. I think that's that's the the act break. Uh, uh, is that no, where it later. ends? Because we we go straight to the car there, right? Oh my god, we haven't talked about the car. <laughs> you guys, we need to the, talk about the car. Where is the act break? I'm trying to. I think the act break. Oh fuck! When is the act break? He's banished before the act break, isn't he? Or is it after? No, he's banished before the act break. But the but I think he goes straight to the car, right? It, like, the act break doesn't come until after he said goodbye to everyone. You're right. And he goes, like, and he has that scene with, um, what's his face? Ophidius, where, he, where Ophidius is like, I was happy on my wedding day, but now I'm really, really happy that you're here. Is that before the act break? I think I that's think second so. act. I thought that was second that, act. I can't no, remember. I, I thought that was first act. Like I there's thought that was the car like, scene, and there's an airplane scene. The airplane scene is him coming home from battle. Right. The yes, airplane scene right. was great. In fairness, the car scene is him going to Antium. I'm trying to remember because I remember he shows up in Antium, and then they're like he's outside of a place in Antium. But I think the silhouettes. Isn't that how it opens? Maybe. Silhouettes. The scene inside the house in it, I guess, between Coriolanus and Ophidius, where they're both in silhouettes, and then Ophidius becomes visible, and then finally Coriolanus becomes visible. I think that's after the act break. Oh, boy. That's after the act break, but I don't think it's the break. Okay, let's just not talk about <laughs> where the act seems breaks. seems fair, then. but we really need to talk about the car. We do need to talk about the car. Um, so. Uh, okay. So if any of our readers... Yes, I do. I have some feelings about the car. Um, I laughed audibly. Oh yeah, me too. So (laughs) if any of our listeners have ever seen the television show Supernatural, first of all, my condolences. Oh, maybe that was after the act break. Now I'm thinking it was because I don't think we talked about it during intermission. Yeah, that's true. We would have talked about it. But second of all, this car scene forcefully reminded me of the VFX of Supernatural, um, which was a, for those of you who yeah, have made better life choices. We have to say what choices. the car scene is, because people haven't seen this production. Okay, okay, fine. For those of you who have made better life choices, the Supernatural is a terrible show on the WB. The car scene in, Cori- in this production of Coriolanus is Coriolanus takes leave of his family because he's been exiled and banished from Rome for being rude to the plebs. And he bids a tearful goodbye to his family, tearful on their part, not on his. And then in this production, he gets in a car. That's on stage. Yes. Like a stationary car on stage. And the motor of the car is running to make it go sort of gachuga, chuga, 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 chuga. And in the background, there is projected the road passing and then forests and then mountains and then different forests. While the car vibrates on stage but remains stationary, it's like a terrible bad old movie. Yeah, there's, there's also projections on the car of when it's raining, projections of the rain being washed over the car, the hubcap spinning on the vehicle as well. It was it was superfluous that it did serve to show the distance of the exile, but in a in a little bit of a heavy handed over the top way. I actually lols. Me too. It was great. I can verify that Alex laughed. (laughs) (laughs) 
other people were not laughing, I should say. I laughed. I guess you laughed. I did not laugh, <laughs> but I did find it mildly amusing. But it like that that sort of helps highlight the the trends. I'm I'm going to pretend this is a segue into what I want to talk about because that was that was entirely uh, gratuitous. But the the first half of the play really seems to be having stripped out nearly all of the battle scenes in the war. It's really a, a chamber drama uh, for control uh, for power control of the Senate that's being played out amongst the various factions and Coriolanus as an ill-fitting politician who can't canvas right and who hates the people uh it really seems to view Coriolanus through political rather than military eyes and then everything changes in the second act that turns basically it focuses in on the relationship between Ophidius and Coriolanus to like really the exclusion of of most other action I would suggest in, in sort of that second half yeah, and then at some point it becomes the Ophidius play. The relationship between Coriolanus and Ophidius and how the second act is basically Graham Abbey on stage. Okay, so I loved Ophidius. I know that you guys didn't like like him as much as I did. Unpopular opinion. I quite like him as well. Love Graham Abbey. Let him direct. He was in a different play than everybody else was. But in that play... But was that his job. fault or was that everyone else's fault? Well... <laughs> Okay, to be fair, I actually think the fact that he was in a different play was purposeful. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> okay, so the fact that they cut, that they don't actually show the battle scene between Coriolanus and Ophidius means that the only person who knows what happened there, aside from Coriolanus, is Ophidius. The audience doesn't know. No, no one else was there. There were no other people on stage. The only people that know about it is Coriolanus and Ophidius. And all we know about about it is that there was a, st a standoff, not maybe the right word, but there was some kind of con confrontation battle between them because we're, yeah. So what this means is that Ophidius is sort of uniquely placed to understand Coriolanus as a military person in a way that nobody in Rome understands. He understands that this is a military guy he understands, like, in a way, he understands Coriolanus better than anybody else. And what he understands especially, which, like, Volumnia doesn't understand, and which even Menenius doesn't really understand, is that Coriolanus is somebody who has to be managed. And when you look at the difference between how Ophidius behaves physically and how Coriolanus behaves physically, Ophidius is very still. Ophidius is very watchful. Ophidius is always next to Coriolanus. And you get this sense that he is handling him. And that includes the fact that we do actually, that as soon as things start to get out of hand, we, we hear Ophidius saying, Coriolanus thinks that he's better than he is. I'm going to kill this guy. Like, there is never a point at which you feel like Ophidius doesn't understand what's going on and doesn't have a plan. And that's a huge contrast to... Volumnia the hot mess who's just I'm gonna have feelings all over the place I don't really have a plan so I think in the context of this production that's an interesting choice and it kind of those things all kind of work the problem is is that haven't really set up Ophidius as the rival that he is so I can read into that because I know the play and so I can kind of get that but I don't think 
Like, this is... Greatly, this is not like Midsummer Night's Dream or Hamlet in the sense that it is very... In the sense that it is in conversation with the text and everybody seeing is it. Seeing it is having a conversation between this production and the text and all the other productions they've seen. Because chances are, most people in the audience, they haven't read Coriolanus. And... Chances are they haven't seen Coriolanus performed because last time it was performed was 10 years ago. So, you ha- and it's not a popular play. It's not well known. It's not studied. Like, probably you didn't even, I mean, none of us. Well, Craig saw it because he was working. None, like, I didn't even know there was a production in 2006. I read I it even... because I went through a phase where I read everything and I thought it was terrible. <laughs> but like, I didn't even know it was there and that I missed it. In this, but, like, I know that I missed Timon, and that's on my radar now. Like, Coriolanus was so completely off my radar, I didn't know anything about it until the Ray Fiennes film. And then I became a super fan. So it's already this play that you can't assume people are, that it's in conversation with. Like, the understanding of the play. Like, at least, even if you've never seen Lear, and never read Lear... You probably know that Lear is about an old guy who gives away his kingdom and his daughters are awful. Right? Like, you know, you might not know anything else, but you know that and then he, like, becomes a crazy old man. And he has a fool. Like, you might, you those are sort of things that are within the cultural air. <laughs> Pick it up by osmosis. Which happens by water. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> not a science podcast. You heard it here first. Um, sorry I teach science. I taught <laughs> osmosis, so I had to correct that. <laughs> um, <laughs> back to the topic. Where was I going with this? People don't know that Ophidius is supposed to be right. So you can't. So, so the assumptions that I'm making about Ophidius and how he's treating Coriolanus, I think it's hard for me to separate between what I know about Ophidius and the con- and how I am con- thinking about the play as the play versus this production versus other productions I've seen. Versus how much of that is clear from this production. And I think a lot of it is, I'm like, okay, Lepage, I have also read Coriolanus and seen Coriolanus. And so I see what you're doing here. But I think the, he hasn't really earned what he's doing with Ophidius because no one else is in that place. I would suggest that in this production, Ophidius is less, is depicted less as a, a, a rival or mere image of Coriolanus and more of a the, so there's a homoerotic tension there and there is also just a, a plain form of of en, of envy or of of admiration that that depicts between them uh and so we as, we as the audience you know coming in don't have the same respect for Ophidius because we have not seen him in battle but we do see him uh they do keep in the the text in the second half where you know, Ophidius is chafing at the fact that Coriolanus is taking over lead control and that they were supposed to be sharing command of the army on the approach to Rome and all of a sudden he's taken it over. And uh, there's the suspicion of what Coriolanus may do, that Ophidius is seen as a lesser man who towards the end has the chance to cut him out and and sort of take his place, take back control and, and or leap him, which they do by, you know, killing Coriolanus. And we should talk about the death scene. But one of the things I wanted to say is how this portrayal of Ophidius, Alex, I think you're giving this production a little too much credit, but how this production of Ophidius sort of, of Coriolanus sort of 
pales in comparison to the 2011 film version. Which yeah, literally everything does. I think this even pales in this pales comparison though to the Donmar production, which I have major problems with. Yes, um, I understand that. Do not let the best be the enemy of the good, but the particular the particular thing I wanted to draw out is. The only reference to Ophidius we get in Act 1 is Coriolanus saying he is a lion I am proud to hunt. So, your production has to work really, really hard to develop Ophidius as a threat, right? Because Ophidius says in the second act, we faced off 12 times, and he won all 12 times. How is this person a lion that Coriolanus is proud to hunt? Right, especially since when we're introduced to Ophidius, he is in a bath towel. Yeah. <laughs> like, baffling maybe it's just a sexual hunt that Coriolanus is on but I digress (laughs) I mean not this Coriolanus right like I'm I'm really I'm I'm not sure what motivates this Coriolanus other than being occasionally browbeaten by his mother yeah I have no clue which is why I think this production is bad I also think this production isn't interested in what motivates Coriolanus and Like, not only is it not obvious what motivates him, but I just don't think it's interested in what motivates him. And I think, I mean, the question of, you know, how is Slav related to this production of Coriolanus? And I think there's this kind of unintentional thing that's happening is that by not making Coriolanus much of a character, by basically just turning him into, like, the production... The center around which the plot turns. Right, but the the production has also turned him into a body who fights, who does things. And so what we've basically turned this into is a black body that everybody uses that is a plot device for everyone else. To be fair, most of the characters in the play, I would suggest, are, are bodies that are that are just used by Lepage to have interesting settings. Right, but this seems especially egregious because it's sort of the idea, well, I mean, Stratford's, Stratford has always been fairly decent at diversity casting, but has not traditionally done a good job of diversity casting in, like, title roles. So the fact that they've got a non-white person as Coriolanus is notable, and Generally, the way Stratford does colorblind, does diversity casting is they do colorblind casting. And that also means that the plays are colorblind and they just ignore the fact that there are people of different races and it's not a thing and they don't use that to make points or whatever. And that's definitely, this production is definitely in that tradition, but I think they're unintentionally making this, you know, political statement just like not putting black people in a slave song musical about slaves is itself a political statement yeah i i I would say my point is mostly just that i think lepage is oblivious to a lot of these conversations that are that are going on and maybe that's that's maybe the parallel that i would draw between them more more so than you know unintentional misuse of black bodies oh totally i think he is oblivious but i think that but but my point is that the fact that he's oblivious for sure he is oblivious, but then the way that he's using them is, like, particularly egregious. M.A., anything you want to add on this point? Not on this point. Um, I, as a general rule, I agree with Alex. 
I think this is a byproduct. I mean, I, I agree with Alex, but would place my emphasis slightly differently in the sense that this weird racial dynamic is, I think, a byproduct of the play's careless attitude toward its characters. The productions, right? Uh, the productions. I beg your pardon. Yes, the productions' careless attitude toward its characters. And my biggest problems with this production were when it failed to be thoughtful about those characters. Yeah, so I, I think and this might be an interesting point to add in about the rehearsal process for this production. Uh, Robert Lepage's company, uh, Ex Machina, has a very specific rehearsal process that's fairly unique, where they spread about 10 weeks of rehearsal over a period of years in preparing for a production with the company involved and the design uh, evolves during that process. And so the, there's, there is sort of this intricate collaboration that goes on, contrasted with Stratford's usual approach for his productions, which is it's a repertory theater company. Uh, the company members all arrive uh, in the winter and around February, and they spend uh, 10 to 12 weeks in rehearsal, rehearsing a couple of productions at a time before going into previews and opening. So they, for this production, thanks to uh, Kelly Neestruck from The Globe for doing the interview with uh, Lepage, they compromised on the rehearsal process and had a couple of weeks of workshops in Quebec City over the past year before going in into Stratford and, and rehearsing it this spring. And so to me, it's, it's interesting because I can... The way I'm choosing to interpret how he handled this production of Shakespeare was I think he came in with a clear idea, it's in the program notes as well, that he wanted to talk about media and social media and the life today. And he, in fact, describes himself as more sympathetic to Coriolanus than maybe he once was because he's getting browbeaten by, uh, you know, by all these these faceless people and, and other people on the on the Internet and in criticism, which oh, uh, really? seems to be quite a bit of foreshadowing over what happens in Lepage's uh, real life. <laughs> because I do Sympathy believe toward that Coriolanus that... is not like a popular position. No, certainly not. But uh, have you seen them, internet trolls? <laughs> seems to be Lepage's uh, position on this. And so uh, he seems to have come up with a very clear idea that that's what he wanted to talk about, and that seemed to drive a lot of the decisions. And in many ways my impression of the production overall is that he sort of trusted the actors and let them go and, and work with, with very little shaping from him other than to say, this is your constraint. This is the, this is the set you're in. This is the amount of physical space you have. This maybe, I don't even know if he maybe gave a general idea of how they should handle their characters and otherwise just let them run with it without really a, a firm control or idea of, of how they should be characterized. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this this gets into the bigger question of why do this production? I think that's part of what where we're seeing this problem. I mean, I will say that despite the sort of incoherent direction, or maybe inchoate is maybe more... Well, it's a bit of both. <laughs> I did find the line readings very lucid, and that's partly, you know, these are trained actors. But that being said, I have seen terrible productions of Shakespeare at Stratford where I was like, I don't really know what they're saying. And I felt like I did know what they were saying in this. Mm. But that's partly a function of this play though, right? Like Coriolanus is weirdly straightforward. Uh, maybe. 
I could be part of it. I think they also made cuts in a kind of cin- I think the way they cut the, the, the text is a little bit cinematic. It's a bit more like what Ray Fiennes did in his film and what like Kenneth Branagh does too much to do. Like they really kind of did away with big speeches for the most part. And you know, Shakespeare's speeches seem to tend to be saying the same thing three different times in three different ways. And you know, what they do in films is they pick pick just one. And what they did in this production, I think, is they picked just one. I think the, that, like, shortening those speeches certainly helps with clarity, even if it gets away, takes away from some of the sort of theatrical nature. So I think that might be part of why. But anyway, that, that was sort of my, like, sidetrack that I, it's kind of interesting that I found it so lucid, despite the fact that I agree with what, what Craig is saying, that they, like, the, fa- the idea that the actors were kind of left to their own devices, like, you can kind of feel that. And I think part of the issue with with why it's not working or why that's a problem here goes back to this sort of Stratford idea of why do you put on productions? And it often feels like Stratford is just kind of like churning them out. You know, they look at the playbill of the last 10 years and they go, oh, time for Coriolanus. Um, or they look at the playbill and they're like, what are the, play- what are the comedies that bring in the old folks? Oh. An ideal husband did pretty well five years ago. Let's bring it back. And these things are not tied to we have an actor who wants to do it or a director who has an idea. And it, you compare that with, I mean, I, my hobby is reading is reading about artistic directors and reading their memoirs of their time artistic directing, especially the National Theater. And if you think about like the way that Richard Ayer and Nicholas Heitner talk about how they programmed the season, it was very much director-driven, director and actor-driven, where they would be like, well, we they would have constraints like we need we need three musicals, we need three Shakespeare's that are going to be in the in the big theater, and we need you know three modern three new plays and three modern classics, right? But within that, they would do whatever, and he would say to they had a sort of stable of directors, and he would they would say to them, you know, like what are you interested in doing, and they would choose because of that. And then often, like, some of these productions, they didn't just come up with that year. They had been years in the making. Like, Nicholas Heitner's Othello, when he did Hamlet with Rory Kinnear, which I think was in 2011, I want to say, or 2010, maybe, when he did it, that's when he asked him, will you play my Iago? And then they didn't do that until 2013 or 2014. So, like, they had already started thinking about what is our take on this play? Why do we want to put this on? What is our take on this character? And they were having conversations about this informally for years before they put on this production. So by the time they put on this production and get into that rehearsal period, like, they have a reason for doing it other than time to do our Othello because we haven't done it. And I think you see that in the results. You know the RSC was also is also doing trying to do all of the Shakespeare's under Gregory Doran, but again it was like the particular plays that he tackled were ones that he had something to say about and wanted to revisit for some reason, and then the directors that got assigned to the other ones had you know it's like there was a reason for doing it, and even if you think about the Richard the Third that um, uh, Ray Fiennes did, that was. Ray Fine saying, I want to do Richard the Third, and then 
they built that production sort of around him. But like, like there was a reason for doing it. It wasn't just like it's time to do our Richard the Third. And so there was something that was, you know, these things had been percolating and, and thought had been going into it by more than one person. I see what you're saying, but Alex, Coriolanus does not exactly put bums in seats, right? <laughs> no, no, I know. I mean, the comment that you and I made when we saw this program is, wow, they really don't want to make any money this year. Yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, that was Although, my comment, which Chimbalino saved on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Although in terms of this production, I think they did... Uh, I feel like this was a choice. They obviously wanted to work with Lepage for a while, and I think this was a play that Lepage wanted to do. Uh, to the extent that this production actually is being mounted at Stratford this year in English, and they are producing remounting the production in French in Montreal next year through Théâtre de Nouveau Monde. So, what actually that leads me to wonder. I'm curious. That translation is uh, already complete. I guess it's an existing version that's translated by Michel Garneau. And so, uh, I'm curious whether the 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 edits they made in the English script are based on that French translation and any edits made there. I would be very curious to, to investigate that. So, so I, I guess I would say yes, to some extent, Stratford certainly does operate on a clock and on uh, sometimes drawing by individuals. But uh, in this case, I feel like the choice was one driven by Robert Lepage, where I think we can critique is he doesn't necessarily, I think, have anything overly profound to say in the production well and i think also the fact that he's going to remount it in french with i mean not that you're going to get english actors who don't speak french to do the production in french but the fact that he's planning to remount it it, it seems that this is not really like that that is in itself a way of saying i don't give a shit about the actors that the actors are just my pawns that i'm going to put in place and and it's interchangeable because generally when you remount productions especially i mean they're generally not done in different languages but Generally, when you remount productions within a year, you retain cast, director, set, and cast is a big part of that. And the fact that he's, like, I mean, Craig, you and I were discussing this, like, how do people get cast in Stratford Productions? You know, do, how do they figure, do they have a company already? And then you just have to, like, pick and choose and fight with the other directors about who the company is? Or do you audition for specific parts? Because what they do with the RSC is they have auditions for the season every year. And the, and when you audition for the season, you audition for specific roles in specific plays. And you, like, you may not know that when you're auditioning, you audition for the, for the company, but then one director is like, Oh, I want you as this. And then will you take this other actor? Will you take this actor in this other play to play this, to play something? And then they make sort of agreements. And so then, then they're casting for specific parts. But the fact that, like, Lepage is coming in from outside, he's not bringing his own actors. Like, you don't even get the sense that, like, he wants to work with these people, given his demands and what a diva he was. That That's maybe part of built into why, like, if he doesn't want to work with them, then that's why he's not working with them. And that may be one of the more fundamental differences between film and theater here, which is in film, there's a tradition of auteur directors holding exacting control over the entire production and in theater that's much less the case and that may be what's most cinematic about this production yeah no that's a good point because theater is an act is you know we always talk about theater as an act as medium even if directors are essential and <laughs> you don't get the sense that this is a director who thinks that actors matter 
Maybe he thinks actors who speak French matter. Maybe it's different. I will reference once again this Globe interview uh, done by Kelly Neistruck, which uh, I think we might put a, a link to on our on our website. Beautiful. Where he says that he does expect the production between English and French to be radically different, just in, even in the terms of the fact that, you know, he says, uh, and I will quote from it here, I have a very different personality when I speak English and when I speak French, he says. And so it will be curious to see, you know, the, the, the set and staging will likely stay the same but curious to see how it's a uh, review when it happens next year and uh, in terms of what its depiction looks like. Um, well, I think this is kind of a good place to wrap. So uh, yeah, thank you for this very thoughtful and illuminating conversation. You can find our guests online in the interwebs. Um, Mary Angela Rowe. You can find me at lapsed Victorian on Twitter. And Pogotan. You can find me at CRUT, C-R-U-T, on Twitter. And I'm Alex Heaney. You can find me at B West Cineast, B-W-E-S-T-C-I-N-E-A-S-T-E. And you can find all of us at the 21st Folio Twitter account, which is at 21st Folio, 21ST, the numbers 21-S-T-F-O-L-I-O. And you can check out our website, 21stfolio.com, 21stfolio.com. Uh, and find us also at, well, Mary Angela and I, you can find at uh, 7th Row at 7th-row.com. And if you like this podcast, there's going to be a 7th Row podcast coming, which is not about Shakespeare. It's just about films and looking at our special issue of films. There will be some overlap of participants like me and probably M.A., uh, but that will be coming soon. So ch- So keep an eye out for that. All right, we'll be back soon. That's the end of this episode of The 21st Folio. To keep up with the latest episodes, subscribe to The 21st Folio podcast on iTunes. For show notes and more information about the podcast, please visit 7th-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-R-O-W.com. 